Hi there and welcome back to the Revision Hub. Our aim is to make learning simpler and to give you more confidence to aim higher in your exams. Don't forget to stay tuned by following us as we will be releasing new episodes every Thursday. This allows you to be one of the first to hear new episodes. Whether you're an auditory learner, finding it difficult to make time to revise or just want a refresher on topics, we're here to help. The first area we'll be addressing in this episode is speed and velocity. And a concept that we believe to be essential in this topic is the difference between a scalar and a vector quantity. A vector has both magnitude and direction, whereas a scalar quantity only has magnitude, aka size. Some scalar quantities would include speed, distance, and mass, while vector quantities include velocity and displacement. You might travel at a speed of 60 miles per hour, whereas you might have a velocity of 60 miles per hour due west. We can pretty much guarantee that you'll need to use speed in meters per second equals distance in meters divided by time in seconds in at least one of your physics exams so you should be confident in converting units rearranging and using this equation in an exam you might need to apply your knowledge of equations such as this in real life setting for example explaining how speed cameras work in this case multiple photographs are taken at regular intervals which is where you get the time from and distance is indicated by lines on the road Using the equation speed equals distance divided by time, you can work out the average speed of the vehicle over the interval of time between the two photos, making you able to decide whether the speed limit was being broken. You may also be asked to order the average speeds of different objects. Because of this, you should have a general idea of how fast things are. The main things you know are walking is 1.4 meters per second, cycling is 5.5 meters per second, a car is between 13 meters per second and 31 meters per second in a built-up residential area and 55 meters per second on a roadway. Typically, they might be compared with wind speeds, so you should recall that a gentle breeze is 5 meters per second and that a gale is 20 meters per second. The second topic is acceleration, which is the rate of change of velocity. It is measured in metres per second squared and can be calculated by dividing the change in velocity by the time taken. Because it's a vector, it can have a positive or negative value. A negative acceleration means that something is decelerating. To calculate distance or velocity when acceleration is constant, you can use one of the Suvat equations v squared minus u squared equals 2as. There are two types of graph which we feel you should understand for this topic, distance time graphs and velocity time graphs. It is important that you don't get them mixed up because different conclusions can be taken from each of them. For example, on a distance time graph, a horizontal line indicates the object has stopped, whereas on a velocity time graph, this indicates a constant velocity because the gradient is the acceleration of the object. With the velocity time graph, you can calculate the acceleration of the object by calculating the gradient. This is done by dividing the change in the y-axis by the change in the x-axis. The same calculation of gradient can also be done for a distance time graph. 
However, on this graph, it is a calculation of the speed. On a distance time graph, you can find the distance travelled by finding the change in distance on the y-axis over the period of time, whereas you should calculate the area under the graph to find distance on a velocity time graph. Forces can be one of two types, contact where the objects are touching, like in friction, and non-contact where the objects aren't touching, such as magnetic and gravitational forces. In the majority of situations, there is more than one force which affects an object, so the overall result of the combination of all those forces acting upon that object is referred to as the resultant force. If the resultant force is not equal to zero, then the object is either not moving or is moving at a constant speed. If the resultant force is zero, then the object is said to be in equilibrium as all the forces of an object cancel each other out. One method that can be very useful for working out the resultant force upon an object is a scale or vector diagram. This means that you can measure the resultant force pretty easily. For example, if there is a 6 newton force acting in an upwards direction and an 8 newton force pushing the object rightwards, you're going to have to calculate the resultant force from these two numbers. So first off, draw a dot to represent this object. And now you need to come up with a scale. So for example, 1 centimeter is equal to 2 newtons. So with that in mind, you draw a vertical line from this dot which is three centimetres long to represent the six newtons acting in an upwards direction. And then you would draw a four centimetre line from this dot to the right to represent the eight newton force pushing this object rightwards. So with those two lines drawn, you'd connect the dots to create a triangle. That line you've just drawn is the resultant force. And when you measure it, it should be five centimetres. And according to your scale, 5 centimetres should be 10 newtons, so that's the resultant force. Newton's first law states that an object will remain stationary or at constant velocity unless acted upon by an external force. Or to put it another way, if there's no resultant force, then there is no change in velocity. Newton's second law also links to this, as it says the force acting on an object is equal to its rate of change of momentum, or a non-zero resultant force will result in an acceleration. This gives us a useful equation for calculating the resultant force as it is equal to the mass multiplied by acceleration, which you may know as F equals MA. Friction always acts in the direction which opposes motion. The balance of the driving force of a vehicle against friction decides whether the vehicle moves at a steady speed accelerates or decelerates. When the driving force is equal to, greater than or less than the friction force respectively. Friction is a contact force between two surfaces, whereas drag is felt by an object travelling through a fluid, which you will remember can be either a liquid or a gas from the first episode. When the forces acting upon an object become equal again, after it has accelerated, it has reached terminal velocity, which means that the object is falling at a constant velocity and that it is in equilibrium, as the resultant force is zero. This can be between driving force and friction, however, an exam question would typically refer to a falling object, such as a skydiver, 
in a question relating to terminal velocity. In this case, terminal velocity is reached when a balance is found between weight and air resistance. The next topic in this episode is inertia, which can be defined as how difficult it is to change an object's velocity, and this is based upon the mass of an object. This is because Newton's second rule says that mass equals force divided by acceleration. This can be remembered as F equals ma. As a larger mass requires larger force to accelerate, it naturally also requires a larger force to decelerate. Newton's third and final law is that when two objects interact, they exert equal and opposite forces upon each other. Inertia occurs upon the impact of this force. However, as an object with a larger mass will have lower acceleration for an equivalent force, as that exerted upon the same object but with a smaller mass. The next topic is momentum. The first thing you need to know about momentum is how to calculate it using the equation. Momentum is equal to mass multiplied by velocity. Momentum is a vector, so as you learned earlier, it has both direction and magnitude. Direction and magnitude! When a resultant force acts upon an object for a period of time, this results in a change in momentum, which can be explained by Newton's second law. Because acceleration is the change in velocity over time, F equals ma can be rewritten as force is equal to mass multiplied by the change in velocity divided by time. This means that a force applied to an object over any time interval will change the object's velocity. As we just said, change in momentum is equal to mass multiplied by change in velocity. Therefore, you end up with the equation force in newtons equals change in momentum in kilogram meters per second over time, measured in seconds. A key thing you need to know in relation to momentum is that it's conserved, i.e. in a collision when two objects collide, the momentum of the two objects before and after the collision are conserved as long as no external forces act upon them. There are, however, two different types of collision. Elastic, where the total energy in the kinetic stores of the objects is the same before and after the collision, and inelastic, where some of the energy is transferred to other stores, for example by heating or by sound. Everything that is made of matter is surrounded by a gravitational field. However, the bigger the object, the bigger the gravitational field strength, and therefore the more noticeable its effective. Weight measured in newtons equals mass in kilograms, multiplied by gravitational field strength measured in newtons per kilogram. While the mass of an object is constant, its weight is dependent upon the gravitational field strength, and therefore changes. A common exam question involves this equation, would be calculating the weight of an object on other planets in our solar system. I'm now going to go through some equations which are commonly required in exams and when they'll be required. First, potential energy. Any object at height has energy in its gravitational energy store and this can be calculated by multiplying mass by height and gravitational field strength. You should recall this is 9.8 newtons per kilogram on Earth, however the value to use will typically be printed on the front of your exam paper as they may ask you to use 10 to simplify your calculations. Secondly is kinetic energy 
which any moving object has, and is half multiplied by mass and speed squared, or half mv squared. Ensure that your square speed, because this is where people tend to make mistakes and lose marks. Whenever a force moves in objects, energy is transferred and work is therefore done. Work done equals force in newtons times distance in meters. The units of work done are sometimes said to be newton meters, but you can use joules instead if you find it easier, because work done is the same as energy transferred. Power is the rate at which energy is transferred, and its unit is the watt, which is one joule of energy transferred per second. And the equation is power is equal to work done divided by time. When you apply a force to an object, it can be stretched, compressed, or bent. And these are all types of deformation. This deformation can be either elastic, which means that the object will return to its original shape once the force is removed, or plastic, if the object doesn't return to its original shape. The extension of a spring, or any object which deforms elastically, is directly proportional to the force applied to the object. However, the stiffer the object is, the less it will deform, with the same force applied. The stiffness of an object is related to its spring constant. A stiffer object will have a greater spring constant. This relationship between the extension of an object performing elastically and force is called Hooke's Law and is given the equation F equals Ke, where F is force in newtons, K is the spring constant and is measured in newtons per metre and extension is measured in metres. In the exam question, you might be asked to calculate the extension of a spring when a force is applied, in which case you would rearrange the equation to extension equals force divided by spring constant. The elastic limit is the point at which an object no longer performs elastically when force is applied, and performs plastically instead. As well as the object not returning to its original shape, the extension will no longer be directly proportional to the force applied. As work is done to deform an object, energy is transferred into the object's elastic potential energy store, and this energy is equal to half times the spring constant times by extension squared. Helpfully, this also works for elastic compression, but extension squared is replaced with compression squared. If you have a force extension graph, then the area under the graph. If you have a force extension graph, then the area under the graph is equal to the energy transferred up until the elastic limit. A moment is the turning effect of a force and is relevant in an object with a pivot as a force can cause the object to rotate around this pivot. Moment is equal to force multiplied by distance, which means that a longer object with an equal force will result in an increased moment. For example, a spanner that is longer will give a greater pivot. A balanced object is in a position where its anti-clockwise moment is equal to its clockwise moment. Levers act as a force multiplier because increasing the distance from an object means that less force has to be applied to deliver the same turning effect slash moment. An example of this is lifting a heavy load in a wheelbarrow where the wheel acts as a pivot, 
gears for example on the bike. Increase the moment of force as well as transferring turning effect because a larger gear will only have to be turned by a small amount for an entire rotation of a smaller gear. We talked about pressure in the last episode, so feel free to check that out if you need a reminder on the equations. Hydraulics is a useful application of the fact pressure is transmitted equally in all directions within fluids. This works because liquids are virtually incompressible. Hydraulics are also force multipliers, like levers, and they use a small force to produce a much larger force. As pressure is force divided by area, using a piston which you apply force to a small cross-section area will mean there is a large output force on the other piston with a large cross-sectional area. This is because the equation can be written to become force equals pressure multiplied by area. So that's it. Thank you so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this episode and don't forget to follow us to be the first to know about our latest episodes. In the next episode, we'll be talking about static electricity, series and parallel circuits and lots more. So we look forward to seeing you then. Bye.